Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. And those who are going to Little Worship can be dismissed at this time. And if you're staying in here with us, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Luke. We're back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Thank you, blockers. Off to the races. Uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 20 through 26. We're actually going to back up, and if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 17 to kind of get a running start uh, into our passage this morning. Um, so, I, I've not been in the military, and so I don't know if it's one of those rules, kind of like uh, we don't talk about Bruno type, <laughs> type rules, right? Um, or if it's like the number one rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Um, so if I'm about to break some unknown rule, please forgive me. I do apologize. Um, so when you sign up for the military, one of the first things you, they take you through is, is basic training, right? And, and so I'm told uh, everything about basic training is, is highly intentional. Uh, according to my cousin who was an airman, he said, it, do, it, doesn't matter. it doesn't matter who you were before basic. It doesn't matter how cool you were or uncool you were or how rich or how poor you were. It doesn't matter because everybody comes in, and I got to watch the video of him and his friends walking in to, to get their hair cut, and they're like deer, you know, uh, deer in the headlight look on, on their faces. Everybody gets the same buzz cut. Everybody gets the same clothes. If you wear glasses, everybody gets the same style of glasses. It's almost as, as if to say, like, who you were before this day doesn't matter. Like, who you were is dead now. Uh, you are going to be built up anew. Everybody comes in and they're on the same level. And so the purpose of, of basic training, again, so I'm told, is to take the civilian out of you and to replace it with a top-notch military mindset. And so at the very beginning of this time, the drill instructors level with you. So all the new recruits can learn what it means, what it looks like, what it looks like, and what is expected uh, of them now that they are soldiers. And so their former life is over. <laughs> Things are different now. Okay. In a pretty similar way, if you remember back before Christmas, Josh preached on the passage just, just prior to this one about Jesus having the authority to call his apostles. You know, things are starting to take shape. You know, he's, he has all these students, now he has these apostles. Um, well, in our passage this morning, having called them, at the very beginning of their following him, he, he levels with them. Or, or literally, as you see in our passage, he, he took them down to a level place down by the seashore and began their basic training. That, that like the military, now as his followers, they weren't the same people that they used to be. And before they, they get too far into the ministry, he's trying to teach us that his way, that the kingdom way, looks differently. And, and so, again, on the front end, Jesus begins laying out for them and for us what his followers look like. And, and this morning, and so the next few weeks to come, we, we too have the privilege of going to basic training uh, of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. And we're going to have the opportunity for Drill Sergeant Jesus to get in our faces and to level with us 
about what it looks like to follow him. Okay, but, but before we reread our passage, um, there's an elephant in the room that kind of stomps around at times when you read passages like this because astute readers will pick up uh, on the fact that um, this passage sounds a whole lot like the Sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, this has given the church pro- some Christians problems for years. It sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. Some scholars have even argued that this is Luke's recording of the Sermon on the Mount. But the problem is, is as if you compare the two in Matthew and Luke, there's some substan- pretty substantial differences in the two. Um, in one, or in Luke, the, the list of Beatitudes are worded differently. Um, not to mention the fact that in Luke, Jesus isn't even on a mountain. Like He's on the opposite of a mountain. Like He's down at the seashore on a level place. Which has led skeptics to say, okay, well, well, which one did Jesus say? Which one is right? Which one can we trust, right? Okay, and, and we know this. I, I definitely know I know this about myself. Sometimes we, we overthink things, right? Um, scholar Leon Morris reminds us of something that we all know, at least somewhere we know, uh, that it's common for preachers to use the same material, <laughs> the same themes, in different ways across different uh, sermons, right? And, and you know, it's been said, I, I don't know if this is true, but it's been said that every preacher really only has one sermon in them, you know, one, one message. And, and that's especially true of preachers that have that habit of not using notes, right? You've probably seen the preachers who, it doesn't matter what the, the passage is, doesn't matter what the topic is, they always find a way to talk about this thing over here, right? Um, well, Jesus, too, had one, one message. He really had one sermon um, that he communicated in many different ways and in many different places. And so if we can kind of look at just preaching through that, that lens and remember how actual preaching can work, it's very easy for us to say, yeah, look, it sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, but you know what? A lot of things Jesus said sound similar, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean that that's what Luke was recording. Though it has similar themes and a similar vibe, it's very reasonable to see this sermon as being a separate sermon preached on a separate occasion. Okay? Okay, so with all that said, um, let's dive into God's Word. Again, backing up to Luke chapter 6, verse 17, reading through 26. And Jesus came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. Verse 20. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's God's word. You know, as we begin, it's really important for us to remember and really to notice who it is that Jesus is, is preaching to here, right? Who he's describing, because sometimes Jesus taught huge crowds, right? Sometimes Jesus just gave a general uh, teaching on the kingdom of God, a general call of, rep of repentance. But here, as we see in verse 20, Jesus wasn't talking to the crowds. So when we start talking about who does Jesus call blessed and what's the Bible say about being blessed... He's not talking to everybody. Jesus isn't talking to unbelievers, though they are certainly welcome to, to listen. But this is a sermon which his words are, are distinctly directed to his followers, which means, this is very important on the front end, which means all these beatitudes that we're about to walk through, these are not entrance requirements to being a follower of Christ. Like, like these, this is not a list of things to strive for, you know, to, to get yourself ready for Jesus. Clean yourself up so that Jesus may, may like you. God may love you. No, no. The gospel tells us that Jesus calls you as you are. And he, he reaches down and saves you where you are. And then the Spirit brings you in and transforms you. So what we're saying is these are not entrance requirements. Rather, as Charles Quartz wrote, notes... These define the character and conduct of those whom God has already claimed as children. Okay? This is what we see as that gospel response to salvation. He said, they describe the holy life that necessarily results from genuine salvation. That if, that, that if Jesus has actually saved you and the Spirit has made you new, which really begs a question on the front end. Does Jesus make a difference in our Is he making a difference in our lives? You know, is there a part of this as we go through these next several weeks? Is there a part of this that rings true for us? You know, if Jesus isn't making a noticeable difference in our lives, then we need to really stop and take a long look at, at our souls, right? Because what we find in the Bible is Jesus changes everything. He even changes our definition of the good life. And you know, the words that's used to describe these, you know, the Beatitudes, we call them, um, is blanketed with this title, blessed or, or blessed. And it's really easy to interpret that as happy. I'm, I'm just blessed and I'm happy, right? But in the Greek, the, the Greek word is makarios, which doesn't mean happy per se, because we, we, I think we know this, that being happy is a subjective feeling, right? Um, it, it comes and goes. And, and look, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. It's, I, I want to be happy. Um, but, but Jesus is talking about something way better than being happy. To be blessed is something entirely different or more. In, in the Bible, having a blessed life means regardless of how happy or sad or rich or poor or like wherever you find yourself emotionally or just in life, it means regardless of that, in Christ, God approves of you, period. To be blessed means you live out every moment of your life before the face of a smiling Heavenly Father. 
It means that, that you are the recipient of the divine favor of God. And it's one of the most beautiful and dear titles bestowed upon those who are in Christ. So if you are in Christ, believing in Christ, you are blessed. Blessed. Okay, so what's Jesus' definition then of the blessed life? What does this entail? Well, it's a little different from what our world says, right? And so Jesus contrasts his way, the, the blessed way, and the way of the world by this uh, ancient prophetic uh, dichotomy, you, you could call it, of, of blessings and woes. And, and, and when Jesus speaks of woe here, he's, he's not so much talking about it in this judgmental, like, you are condemned sense, though he does talk about that elsewhere. Um, he's using the... the, the at least the Greek word for woe, has more to do with a sadness over the way someone is living. So Jesus mourns the way that these people are living. So the Greek word for woe has more to do with lamenting than it does condemning. So who are Jesus' followers? What is the basic training? First thing, first step in basic training, Jesus' followers are marked by poverty. We're marked by poverty, verses 20 and 24 says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. A couple things here. One, notice that Jesus isn't saying that all the poor are blessed. You know, we, some of us have this thing, or it can, or like, like being poor is the virtue. He doesn't say all poor are, are blessed. Nor is he saying that, you know, we, we need to you know, make a vow of poverty and, and do, just do that. Yes, Jesus said that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so it, it, it can be tempting uh, for us to say, well, look, if that's what Jesus did, that's what I'm going to do. Um, okay, but, but like we're not Jesus, Right? Jesus had a very distinct purpose. He had a very distinct ministry and calling. Jesus didn't have kids. And Jesus didn't have a spouse, at least an earthly spouse. Um, Jesus didn't have. Like, he, we have expenses that Jesus didn't have. J.C. Ryle wrote, We must not for a moment suppose that the mere fact of being poor or hungry or sorrowful or hated by man will entitle anyone to Christ's blessing. The poverty spoken of here is a poverty accompanied by grace. And so this brings us back to Jesus' first sermon. Remember, he went into the synagogue, opened the scroll in Isaiah, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This good news to the poor was central to Jesus' message. So who's he talking about? Who's this poor he's talking about? If we, we look in that verse he's quoting from in Isaiah 61, the poor Isaiah was talking about was God's people who were exiled in Babylon, which, which means though, though God is near to the financially poor who are in Christ, Jesus is talking about something else here. You know, in Babylon, there were people who sold out you know, when they were exiled to Babylon. People who sold out, uh, who compromised, who rejected God's way in favor of the Babylonian way, and they did pretty well for themselves. In fact, they became, they became wealthy. And the Bible says there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, right? 
But he's saying, if you are, then be rich in God. And what an opportunity to be generous, to steward those things for God's glory. Yet Jesus says there's also some people who just, man, they just want to be rich. You know, who seek life and meaning in the pursuit of material things. And Jesus says, if that's you, what little comfort that retail therapy gives you, that little jolt it gives you, that is all the comfort you'll ever get. And what he's saying is, is it's not enough. Like, like, you need more comfort than that. The kind of poor he's talking about is akin to the ones who did not bow to Babylonian culture. And they said, life isn't in stuff. It's in It's in God. And so to be poor in God is to know that spiritually, we, we are bankrupt apart from Christ. It, it, it's, it's like regardless of how many like Benzes or Benjamins or Bushels or, you know, like you have or don't have. Like, like regardless of that, before God, we are beggars who can't survive off of our own resources. And so we are completely in need of his charity. Like we are completely in need of his stimulus money of the soul to make it. We're, we're in need of his grace. So unlike those who compromised in Babylon and who compromise in our world, the, the Christian life isn't about becoming more self-sufficient, right? It, it's about becoming, at least the life of a Christian is about becoming more Christ-dependent. It, it's a life of, of living by grace today. And living by grace tomorrow. The blessed life is a life that li is lived by grace. You know, it's, it's also interesting to note that, you know, when, when Israel actually came back from exile in Babylon, they were sent back to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple. You know, it wasn't the wealthy who came. It wasn't the ones who compromised. and uh, they, they stayed in Babylon. They were happy as could be in Babylon. But it was the poor. It was the needy and the broken who made that journey back. And said, our God is not riches, our God is Yahweh. Second mark. Jesus' followers are marked by spiritual hunger. Spiritual hunger. And we know this, that we were made, we were made with a spiritual hunger. A, a craving for truth and, and beauty and love. And a, 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 you know, a, a desire for belonging. That's bigger than anything that this world can offer. It's, it's a craving that though, yes, we, we can look at beauty and love in lots of different ways, but this is a craving that can only be satisfied in God. This is the craving that David had in our Old Testament reading that Misha read, that, oh God, my soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh faints for you. It's what Peter said to Jesus. Remember when Peter said, where else can we go? Like, like for you have the words of eternal life. And so our, our world tells us that pain and hunger are kind of bad, right? So you need to medicate, and you need to numb, and you need to distract. But again and again, Scripture tells us that it's actually the pain and the hunger that drive us closer to God. That it's in the desert. It's God luring us out into the wilderness in which we find God to satisfy our deepest longings. So one of the great ironies of following Jesus is that it's when you feel like your soul is dying, I mean, you are peeling. It's often then that the Spirit is actually bringing new life into you. You know, sometimes those crises of faith are the most beautiful moments of growth in your life. 
Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, right? So if, if we hunger for God, then that is a beautiful work of God in us. And we can trust him with it. But if we don't, then that also means that we've become far too easily satisfied with the world. And we've settled for lovers and sustenance far less wild. So Soren Kierkegaard uh, taught it this way. <laughs> he told a story about this duck, right? This duck that was flying across Europe in springtime. And as he was flying, the duck looked down and he saw a, a barnyard that had some, some tame ducks, you know, some kind of farm, I guess farm ducks. Um, and so he swooped down to say hey to the locals. And, and while he was there, he enjoyed some of their corn. Oh, man. Uh, he only intended to stay for an hour, just a quick visit. But there was so much good food there. And so the hour turned to a day, and the day turned to a week, and which then turned to a month. And finally, because of all the food, all the good food and all the safety of the barnyard, he just decided, he just decided to stay for the summer. But then autumn came, and he heard a flock of wild ducks flying overhead. He heard their call, and he, fl he flapped his wings to fly up and to join them. But all this time of eating that corn had made him soft. And, and no matter how much he struggled, he couldn't get higher than the roof of the barn. So he dropped back to the ground, and he decided to settle in for winter, saying, Oh, well, my life is safe here, and the food's good. Kierkegaard concludes, Every spring and autumn when he heard the wild ducks calling, his eyes would gleam for a moment and he would begin to flap his wings. But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry, but he paid not the slightest attention to them. And, and here's his point, and, and really the point that Jesus is making. I hope we realize this, that, that like, we were made for God, by the way, right? Like, like, not for all this stuff that we give our life. We were made for God. May we never be domesticated by this world. And so every time we numb our spiritual ache with some other, something other than the gospel, we sear our conscience. May, may we never become so well-fed or distracted that, that we never hunger for the things that are above so what, what did, um, is it Luke Bryan? This is an old country song. What, what did Luke Bryan say? He said, where I come from, rain is a good thing, right? Um, is, is that how it goes? Corn makes, yeah, rain is a good thing. Well, as Christians, hunger, spiritual hunger is a good thing. Where we come from, spiritual hunger is a good thing. Third, Jesus' followers are, are marked by godly sorrow. This is interesting. It says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. All right. um, real quick, what Jesus does not mean here. Um, Jesus is not attacking all laughter and all comedy. He's not saying, Blessed are those grim, <laughs> no-nonsense, Debbie Downer Christians. Which, by the way, like, there, there's actually a sizable, a very sizable number of Christians who think that life is a sober matter. And, and so any laughter is an attempt to make light of something that you shouldn't. So you just don't laugh. Okay, and, and this, is, this is very personal to me. 
Um, because, there, I mean, there are preachers who would shake their head at me if they knew that I ever told a fitting joke in a sermon. Um, Charles Spurgeon, I think, knew some of these people. He said, he said some preachers he knew, it was like their neckties were twisted around their souls. Yet again, you know, Ecclesiastes says, look, there, there is a time to laugh. There is a time when that's appropriate. The missionary Oswald Sanders highlighted the need for laughter in the church with this, these questions. He asked, should we not see the lines of laughter about our eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? He says, is, is laughter pagan? Have we already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine? He said a church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. Okay, so Jesus isn't talking about, like, he's like, lighten up, Presbyterians. Jesus, what he's talking about is the shallow laughter of the world. So Kent Hughes put it this way. He said that true Christianity manifests itself. This is kind of how you can differentiate here. It manifests itself in what we cry over and in what we laugh about. What do we cry about? What do we laugh about? The irony, of course, is that often we laugh at the things we should weep over. And sometimes we weep over, weep over the things we should be laughing at. So we're called to mourn our sin. Um, are, do you? Have you ever mourned a sin? Um, or are you like the duck in the barnyard? Kind of gotten comfortable, maybe a little soft. Do you mourn your sin? Not, not celebrate it. This is a call to weep over the lost. Like, like not to champion the lost. And to weep over the injustices and the miseries of the world. Like to mourn abuse and betrayal and loneliness and, and so many other things. And yet at the same time as, as believers we're called to celebrate like the Dickens. Like the hope and the joy that is found in Christ. And so the gospel tells us that for those who are in Jesus, he sends his spirit as a, a paraclete, uh, which means the spirit comes alongside of us in this life and comforts us and consoles us. Uh, and, and so there is this part of turning the weeping into, into joy that happens in this life. And then we do know that one day, our tears will give way to laughter uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. So that is the promise that's before us. But what he's saying is if we make light of our spiritual need now, and just, oh, it's, just all, it's all fun, and we laugh about our sin, and we, just, we, we laugh about that now, then he's saying this is about all the laughter we're going to get. Weeping awaits those who aren't in Christ. So God's people, like far from being a killjoy, we're not killjoys. Um, but we are marked by an appropriate godly sorrow uh, over the appropriate things. And then fourth, and finally, Jesus' followers are marked by <laughs> rejection. Merry Christmas, right? Um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, this is the badge of true discipleship. Uh, one, one early confession even defined the church like who we are, define the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. This is an important distinction real quick. Because notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you when people don't like you. 
Blessed are you when you're excluded. Blessed are you when people revile you, revile you period. Don't say that. Now, now, for some Christians, you know, anytime they experience conflict or anytime they experience a little rejection, they say, oh, I'm being persecuted. I, I, I'm sharing in the afflictions of Jesus. Well, maybe, or it could be that you're just hard to deal with, right? It could be that you're just rude, insensitive, thoughtless. It could be you're a jerk, okay? No, what, what he's saying here is you are blessed when you are persecuted on account of Jesus, okay? Um, which means there's this great, uh, remember the, the Trump doll that they had in Tuscaloosa, right? And, and somebody came with the, the thing and stabbed the Trump. Um, well, several years ago, there was this town that, I don't know where, this town people, or this few Christians in town paid for this big blimp to float around town with, with kind of Bible verses on it, and they would drop these gospel tracts. They called them gospel bombs. They would drop them all, all over town. And, you know, some of the people loved it, but a lot of the townspeople, a lot of even the Christians, they're like, look, I don't want this litter in my yard. Um, and so they ended up uh, destroying the blimp. And so this, these few people, they thought they were persecuted because people destroyed their blimp. But really, um, look, they, they were just being insensitive to even their believing neighbors, um, so this isn't about beating people down with the Bible and then you feel bad when they don't like you, but it's, it's living and ministering in his name and then being rejected on account of the gospel. And so what he's saying is, is in the Sermon on the Mount, at least in Matthew, Jesus said, everyone who lives righteously will be persecuted just by living righteously. You will be rejected. And now that's really hard to hear in our day where a major idol is acceptance. And man, you, you may get canceled quick if you live righteously. And so to you, Jesus says, when that happens, when you're persecuted for following the Jesus way, when you're persecuted in his name, you join the long band of saints who were rejected and misunderstood and mistreated by the world. He says, when that happens to you, you are blessed Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. He says that. But, but then, because Jesus also knows that we can go to the other extreme, and in our age of acceptance and being canceled, just want everybody to like us, right? Better send that tweet out, make sure everybody understands what we're saying. Verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You know, as we saw the last two weeks with elders and deacons in Timothy, in Timothy Paul says, like, we need to, yeah, yeah, be well thought of by outsiders, have a good reputation out in the community. But even then, he doesn't, he doesn't say that we need to be people pleasers. Remember, there's this punk rock spirit in Christians. That there's this punk rock spirit in us because of the Holy Spirit that, that like, we don't fear man. Like, we fear God, Right? And that's pretty punk rock today. And what a sobering diagnostic tool, right? That, that if people, if all people speak well of us, even unbelievers you know, who live for the world, they, they love you, speak well of you too, then we may in fact also belong to the world. And J.C. Ryle, man, he challenged me. He said to be universally popular, to tickle all ears is, is a most unsatisfactory symptom and one of which a minister of Christ should always be afraid. 
And that, that called me out because, to be honest, um, I feel like a lot of my life I've spent trying to just get everybody to like me. But maybe faithfulness is the better goal, right? Maybe faithfulness to the gospel. Um, so what Jesus is saying is when you take that stand, you are blessed. <laughs> you may feel all alone, but you are blessed. So again, Jesus begins our basic training by leveling with us. Uh, but uh, before he gets too far, before we get too far, he wants us to know that his followers are marked by a poverty that only Jesus can, can deliver us from. That he gives us a, a hunger only Jesus can satisfy. A godly sorrow that gives way to joy and then a, a hatred from the world. And, and I mean, like, you read that like, good night, right? Uh, such a far cry from the version of American Christianity that's so popular today. What we find when you actually read the Bible is that real Christianity is really hard. But, but as we close, Jesus reminds us of his grace to us even, even there in the heart. In John 15, Jesus said, If you were of the world, oh man, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then lest we despair in the next chapter, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Westminster, that's the good news. Don't settle for anything less. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for just the, the, the basic training, just at the core, what is it to be a follower of Christ? Um, Lord, for those here who are not following, who just don't know, a lot of questions, um, maybe un filled with unbelief, we ask that through your spirit you would continue to pursue them and may that, that, that spiritual hunger that arises in them from time to time, may that spur them and woo them to you. So, Father, we ask that you would continue to capture our hearts. Oh, Lord, help us to see the gospel as oh, this is the ultimate truth and fill us with the joy and fill us with your grace. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.